At photographycourse.net, you'll be able to swap your expertise with other photographers, make light instead of wishing for it, expand your portfolio, and receive feedback from professionals, all of which will develop your artistic eye. Photographycourse.net offers an abundance of premium courses and challenges for participants at every stage of their journey, from technical settings for portrait photography, to landscape composition tricks, to how to start your own photography business, we have everything you need to start shooting confidently. You can work at a pace that suits you. Our 52-week project challenge will provide you with the educational resources, encouragement, and support that you need to take great photographs every week. You can join us at any time as our themes are evergreen. You can also start by shooting every day and learning something new with our 365 Days of Photography course. Led by an industry expert who has mentored over 10,000 students, this course will help you take your photography skills to the next level with daily, bite-sized videos. Throughout the process of learning, you'll have access to a community that will provide you with inspiration and motivation. Get encouragement from other photographers every single day. Our current limited time offer comes with a special discount code exclusive to the listeners of this podcast. Get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Claim this discount by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST. Come join photographycourse.net and capture more than just a moment. Hello everyone, my name is Taya and I'm the host of Great Big Photography World Podcast, where we interview notable photographers in the industry, give advice on a wide variety of topics, and provide tips for beginners and professionals alike. In this episode, I speak with fashion photographer David Cohen Delara. David has an extensive fashion portfolio filled with beautiful photographs of women, and he has a lot of experience in this industry. So if you're interested in this genre, then I'm sure that you'll love listening to this episode. We talk about his beginnings as a fashion photographer, the advice he would give to people who want to work with an agency, and much more. Please enjoy. We have an amazing community at photographycourse.net where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, join photography contests, and much more. In our community, you'll also find a 52-week project that will provide you with weekly educational videos and challenges to help you improve your skills on a regular basis. This is an amazing opportunity for you to not only enhance your skills, but also grow your network and have a wholesome experience as a photographer. We're so inspired by the amazing photographs that our members post every day. When you join our community, you'll be able to make new friends and share your progress with a passionate group of people. None of this would be possible without our member support, so we're very grateful. In order to keep things running, we're offering exclusive membership plans that will give you access to every part of our community and our premium courses. Use the discount code GREATBIGPHOTOGRAPHYWORLD to get 50% off your first year as a member. Go to photographycourse.net slash join and use the code GREATBIGPHOTOGRAPHYWORLD without any spaces to claim your discount. Hi, David. Welcome to Great Big Photography World podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, th thank you for having me. Uh, my name is David Cohendelara. I am a fashion photographer based in Amsterdam. I do some lifestyle and advertising work, but I mainly do fashion. I really like your work. I stumbled upon it on Reddit, which maybe is an unusual place to find photographers because it's known to be quite anonymous. But you had a link to your portfolio there. And 
in that specific comment that I saw for the first time, you mentioned that you used to be a music producer for quite some time. And then you quit that because you didn't feel a connection and then you pursued photography and it was something that you completely fell in love with. I'm curious to know what that experience was like and how did you end up choosing photography? Yeah, well, if you say I was a music producer, that's like making it way, way bigger than it was. That was like doing like some music uh, production, like making uh, some electronic music beats was my hobby. I was always into music, like from when I was young. And then after a while, I discovered when I was about 19, I discovered that you could, you know, get a sampler and chop up some beats from a record and things like that and start making music that way. And I didn't have any musical background. I never learned to uh, read notes or even I didn't learn scales or harmonies or anything like that. So it wasn't musical at all. But I figured that, you know, digital technology or analog technology at the time as well, you could still make some music and hip hop and dance music and that seemed really fun to me. So I started doing that and it kind of got more and more serious where, you know, I had my little student room in university and it was basically a single bed and the rest of it was just samplers and synthesizers and, and mixing board and all of that. And I did that for about 10 years, but I really wasn't that talented. I wasn't good at it. Um, I struggled, you know, I was always trying to make that next beat that would sound really good. And it really never quite turned out very, very well. I was, I mean, I, I did, I DJed a bit and I had a DJ night somewhere in, in Amsterdam and I was invited to the, to the Red Bull Music Academy, which was, you know, it was not super easy to get into. And that was quite fun. So it wasn't all terrible, but it was really, it was never great. It was, it was good enough to sort of keep going and keep trying, but I just, I'm, I'm just really not talented musically. That took me about, I don't know, 10 years to realize that the longer I was doing it, the more it sort of became a, a struggle where I kept trying to make something worthwhile. And I didn't, really like my musical output and nobody else was as excited about it enough to, I never put out a record or anything like that. Not even people were doing 12 inches or even mixtapes and things like that. I never put out anything that stuck. So slowly over those years, I started realizing that I wasn't good at it, kind of lost interest a little bit. And at the same time, I was always, I was always somebody who took a little camera everywhere like this is back when, you know, you didn't have digital yet. So I took a little film camera everywhere to, you know, holidays and stuff, of course, but also just parties and hanging out with friends and skateboarding. And I would always have a little camera on me. After a while, I, I realized that this, hey, this photography thing could also be something creative or something. You can do more than just like take a snapshot of whatever's happening. So as I realized that, that was sort of the same time, like I was losing interest in music because it was just too hard and it wasn't working out well. And at the same time, I was gaining some interest in photography, like beyond just taking the snapshot that I was always taking. So those things kind of crossfaded into each other. I remember I still had all the studio stuff when I decided, like I was getting into like the Lomography, Lomo cameras, the little cheap Russian cameras that have like, it's not like, it's sort of like Polaroid in the way that it's really has a lot of artifacts and the quality is terrible and it's therefore great for, you know, interesting snapshots. So I was doing that and I had all these little compact film cameras, all the, the Yashikas and the contacts and all of that. 
which were dirt cheap back then. You could get a you could get a Yashica like T5 for like less than 50 euros. So I got more and more interested in using those things a little bit more creatively than than just snapshots. And then I bought a DSLR to take it even further. And at the same time, you know, I was losing interest in music. So I was starting to sell off my studio equipment. I had too much stuff and it was too complicated. So I wanted to bring it back to just like turntable and a, a sampler. I had like an NPC sampler and a, an SP1200 was one of the last things I hung on to. Yeah, it kind of crossfaded. So like, like the photography, I noticed that everything that I tried, I liked it a lot better. Like I would look back at pictures and be like, yeah, that's that that worked out well, or I like looking at this. And with the music, it was the opposite. I, every time I made a beat, I would put a lot of effort into it. And then I would listen back and was like, yeah, it's just not great. I wouldn't listen to this myself. I, I wouldn't buy this record if it came out. I think that that's what sealed it for me, that the results that I was getting with photography was were just more something I liked. And the results I was getting from music were not that great. It's good that you were able to follow your intuition and finally embrace something that really worked for you. And it's true in life. If something keeps failing over and over again and you feel like there's a disconnect, then it might be a good idea to try something different. Yeah, exactly. So that's what the comment was about on Reddit. Like somebody was really struggling with photography and I really recognized that exact same feeling that I had about music. Like I'm just not musically talented and it's fine. You know, you don't have to be, especially if it's, you know, if it's just your hobby and it's not your work. So, you know, for a second I thought, oh, maybe this comment is going to sound negative because I'm basically telling them like, you know, oh, if you're not good at this, you could just quit. But I mean that in a really positive way. Like for me, the quitting music was one of the best things I ever did. I should have done it sooner because there was really no future in it. And it like quitting music opened the door for me to get into photography because I couldn't do like both at the same time. And photography worked out really well for me. It really it was a much better fit than music was. I heard this, um, this podcast episode on the, on the Freakonomics podcast, and it was called The Upside of Quitting. And it, it's really about this, that quitting gets a bad rep, you know, losers quits and, and, and all of that. The, the podcast episode goes into how it's uh, actually, it can be a great thing. It can be a really positive thing. And often you should just quit soon. Like if it's something's not working, quit, try something else, put your energy elsewhere, and it might work out a lot better. I don't know if I heard that episode before my switch from music to photography or after, but it's, it's, it describes exactly my experience. Yeah, we talked about this for around half an hour before we started recording. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting and eye-opening for me. And I liked what you said about that podcast and how it's very beneficial to quit sometimes. And you just have to follow your intuition, basically. And you have to accept reality. Sometimes we don't have certain talent but we have a talent in another area and that is completely fine i don't think everyone needs to be perfect at everything it's impossible no that's not that wouldn't be a realistic expectation and and you won't really like if you keep banging your head against the wall at something that you are not good at like if you enjoy it it's fine but if you're not enjoying it anymore as like and i wasn't then yeah, quit. Quit as soon as you can. Just go do something else. I sold all my music gear and that gave me the money to buy a camera. It was great. Yeah, it's fantastic. And so you got into lamography, and then after that, how long did it take before you started to pursue fashion photography? Shooting as just for a hobby for a long time. And then I, 
I finished university, I started working in advertising as a copywriter, you know, which I thought was nice. It's sort of creative work, but my heart was never really in that either. I was lucky to get a job as a copywriter and, and get a creative job as, at an ad agency. After a while, I really noticed that every minute of the day I was you know, either doing photography or thinking about photography or reading about photography. That was my passion. And I wasn't interested in advertising work at all, really. That, that was the difference between me and some of the, the creative advertising creatives that I worked with, especially the younger kids. No, the older ones as well. A lot of people in advertising were really excited about advertising. They would really look at who won a lion at Cannes, you know, the advertising festival. They, they, they gave out prizes for the most creative ads. They would get really excited about this ad that went viral or this fantastically creative campaign or who won the prizes at this festival or that festival. And I was really not that interested in any of that. It's just like, well, ads, when I see an ad on, on the internet or on TV, I'd like to skip it, please. So I wasn't ex excited about advertising, but I was excited about photography. So in the end, I just, again, I had to quit. I, I quit my job to become a photographer and I didn't have clients yet, really. I was taking little jobs if I could get them. Like I would shoot like somebody's club night for a little bit of money or I've done weddings for a year I could get, maybe sometimes I'd get a little job through the ad agency shooting something really simple for them. But I was in no position to just make a full-time living out of photography, but I knew I had to pursue that because otherwise I'd be doing something for my entire life that I wasn't really that interested in. So I quit my job and started looking for assisting work because I figured that's a way to make money, that's a way to learn, and that's a way to just be doing something related to photography full-time, you know, five days a week or six, seven days a week if you had to. So I was looking for, I looked for assisting work and the, my big break came when I started talking to this little company that does post-production and they rent out those expensive phase one uh, medium format digital cameras. I started talking to them and they started hiring me as a freelancer doing post-production for you know, all the great fashion photographers and advertising photographers working in Amsterdam. I learned post-production there from them. Like I, I, I knew quite a bit when I came in, but they really trained me to do proper, you know, fashion professional level post-production. So I was really lucky there. And all the days that I wasn't doing post at their, at their office, I would be digitech or assistant to all these photographers. So I did that you know, five days a week, sometimes more for two years, I think, a little over two years. And that was really my, uh, my school, my training for photography. I learned so much from just being around all these professional photographers, seeing how they worked, seeing how the industry worked, uh, learning post-production, learning a lot about lighting tech and, and all the digital tech. I was trained as a digital tech with the, like the phase one course that they do. Uh, really early on. So that was my school for photography, really. And it was also a great way to make money because as, a, as an assistant or a post-production artist, you know, you get paid every day as a freelancer. It really paid the bills. It was great. And then they said, like, if I wanted to make some personal work, before that, I was doing everything. I was doing a little bit of portraits here or I, I would do landscapes or whatever I wanted, whatever I could think of, I would shoot. 
But as I was working there, I got more and more interested in fashion photography. The company said, um, the company is called Deep Tone, by the way. Did I mention that? They're no. great. Fantastic little outfit here in Amsterdam. And they said, you know, if you want to make some personal work, just grab one of our cameras, which meant like a 50,000 euro Peli case full of, you know, medium formats, body, back lenses, all of that stuff. I was free to just grab one of those and, uh, and use it for personal work, which was fun. So after about two years, I, I had to spend a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to make, what kind of work. I spent a lot of time looking at work. Uh, I really had a, a pretty good idea of what I wanted my photography to look like. So then I started making some of that stuff. I found a stylist that was willing to work with me. Now, first I shot some stuff. I, I, I shot some stuff with, you know, friends. And then I, I started getting some girls from Model Mayhem which was a, do you know Model Mayhem? Is that still around? Yes. Well, I haven't used it in ages, but to anyone who doesn't know what it is, uh, do you want to explain? Yeah. Well, this is, uh, you know, a 2010, I think, or around thereabouts. It's just a website for amateur models and amateur photographers, I think. And I have no idea what it's like now, but back then it was, I mean, there are a lot of people on there and it's really very far removed from, the sort of models that you would find at a model agency. So it was really hard to find somebody who would be a good fit for actual fashion work. But I found a couple of people there. I found some people, you know, through friends, there's somebody who like, wouldn't, wasn't even a model or didn't have any aspirations to be a model, but I thought they had an interesting look. So I would just go and, and shoot something with them. I did that for a very short while. And then I started to find, um, a stylist who would work with me and then I could get some uh, models from agencies as well, which is, you know, they've just been uh, selected from the pool of girls who want to be models. And the, the chances are that you get somebody who's a slightly better fit with fashion photography. If you go through an agency, I did a couple of shoots in the Netherlands and, but I'd already decided that, you know, I wanted my work to look a little bit more international. So after two, I think two shoots, I set up a trip to Paris with that stylist and a trip to Barcelona. And we would get, like, we'd bring a makeup artist as well and uh, get the models there locally because Paris and Barcelona, of course, have their own models. So I did that. I did three shoots in, in Paris and three shoots in Barcelona. And that really sort of made my portfolio look a little bit more international, you know, it's Paris, the streets of Paris look great in fashion photography and, and same for Barcelona. Yeah. So before I did those trips to uh, Paris and Barcelona, uh, just based on the stuff that I'd shot here, there was only two shoots in there with professional models from agencies. Everything else was just like friends and whatever. But even based on that, I was approached by an agency here that said they wanted to sign me. And I was featured in a, a book that was being put out here featuring like the, um, what they called it, the most promising new photographers of 2012 or something like that. So I was getting a little bit of traction. I, the agency wanted to sign me, but I said, I've only done like two shoots with real models uh, and I'm planning to do a lot more shoots uh, abroad. So let's, you know, wait for me to just do that. And then we'll see if the work is good enough. And then we, you know, I, we might sign. So I put them on hold basically went to Paris, did three shoots there, went to Barcelona, did three shoots there, came back with a lot of new work. And then I went back to the agency and said, okay, you know, maybe now's the time. 
I signed with them. That didn't immediately turn into huge amounts of commercial work. It was really, really slow, actually. But they did get me a meeting at uh, Marie Claire magazine, and they liked my stuff. So I started shooting for them almost every month for, I think, the first year. And just having, um, you know, a national magazine in your portfolio, some international looking shoots, it kind of went from there. You know, I got some clients here and there. With every client, you know, there's a chance to create something that'll look even better in your portfolio. And then you move on from there. And I've basically been working ever since. That's an amazing story. It's very cool that you have such a diverse set of skills. At first, you started doing post-production, and then you started assisting. And then from that, you were able to start building your own portfolio. And it's so cool that you were able to start with those very expensive, very fancy cameras. I've only ever seen the phase one. I was a model for a shoot when I was younger, Mm -hmm. uh, for a photographer who was using that camera. And I was just blown away by its visuals. It's just a beautiful camera. <laughs> yeah, these were, um, I think we, when we started, they had the, the phase one P65 plus and the P45 plus. And then just when I got in, the IQ 180 came out and that was the flagship 80 megapixel. And these were still with the, um, the larger medium format sensor, like the, all the medium format ones that they sell now, the Hasselblads and the Fujis. That's actually a cropped sensor from the larger medium format, and it's only slightly bigger than 35 mil. But this was the larger sensor, and I had the feeling that that did give it quite a, a, a different look. It was a CCD sensor as well. I don't know if that matters a lot, but they were terrible at high ISOs. You couldn't really shoot them over 400. But the large sensor and the, the lenses that go with that, I think that gave it a sort of special look that I... I see, I recognize that a lot less in the smaller medium format ones uh, that are out now. But um, yeah, the cameras were like super heavy and they're so slow and they're unreliable. I ended up buying one after I started doing my, um, after like in the first year I got a bunch of commercial jobs. I was like, holy, holy crap, this is quite a bit of money that I just made uh, just by doing photography. And I wanted to put that money back into photography because I, I, I was, I'd been making enough money as an assistant that it, you know, things were fine uh, for paying the bills. And then I got this extra money from these jobs. It's like, well, I'll just like put that right back into the medium format system. So I bought my own, uh, that was the IQ 160, 60 megapixel, but still the, the very large sensor. And I shot that for years, but it's, I mean, and it looked, I looked great. I think the images from that still look better than what you get out of 35 mil, but they were just a pain to work with. They would go wrong so often. Like I, I counted that I couldn't do, like I, I never went 10 shoots without something failing. Like the, the leaf shutter in the lens would lock up or the communication between the bo- body and the back would fail and it would just stop working or it was just a nightmare. And it got worse and worse. And then in the end, I just, I ended up selling everything in I think 2016. Because the, and, and then I just went back to Nikon. I'd had a Nikon before. I always brought the Nikon actually when I would, did travel shoots with the, uh, with the phase one because you never knew. I had, a, I had a backup for the body. I had backups for the lenses, but I didn't have a backup for the back because the back itself was like 30,000 euros and I couldn't afford a second one. Uh, so instead of bringing a second back, I brought the entire Nikon K1000 
kit as well. So you'd have to have like a second body and the lenses and the batteries and the chargers and all of that. And I remember I would be like shooting on some sort of like mountaintop or beach in, in Spain and then the camera would crap out uh, and I'd have to shoot the, do the rest of the day on the Nikon kit. And that just got really tired after a while. So uh, in 2016, I, I sold the phase one kit and I, I never looked back. I think it's, um, it looks in, in, in some cases, you can see the difference in look even on a small JPEG. In many cases, you won't be able to see it on a small JPEG, which is how a lot of people will see your work. You might also not even be able to see the difference on a, on a billboard or anything like that because you don't view those very close. So all those extra pixels are, I don't know, if they make much of a difference to the actual viewer. For that tiny little bit of extra image quality that you will actually notice on a, on a smaller uh, print or JPEG, I don't think the, the hassle was worth it for me anymore. It was just so much to carry, so heavy, slow. The autofocus is prehistoric. And the reliability issues were just like insane. It's so interesting. I think for me, I've always had this very romanticized idea of these cameras because they are so expensive and you mm-hmm. see that they work perfectly. So this is an eye-opener for me. Interesting. Well, the reliability must have gotten better over the past years. I remember just when I sold my system, they, they had put out different bodies. So the body is just without the sensor, right? It's just the the, the mirror housing and all of that. Uh, they had put out new bodies that were they said were more reliable, and they said had slightly faster out of focus, which was just still prehistoric. But then they wanted, I think they were charging ten grand for the for the body alone. So that's without the sensor. So that you have a 30 grand sensor and the 10 grand body. And I had to have two bodies because that was the first thing to, to go wrong. So it's like, I'm not going to spend like, was it, maybe it was five grand each and 10 for two. But I was like, I'm not going to spend 10 grand to just like maybe get slightly better reliability and nothing else. It was just, it was just, yeah, I couldn't justify that cost. It was just insane. And probably like these, these newer ones, the Fujis, I'm sure they're reliable because they're just basically normal mirrorless cameras where everything is in the same package. But with the digital backs on those older DF plus bodies, yeah, it was a nightmare. Yeah, I can imagine. Thank you for sharing your experience with that. And I like what you said about upgrade if you want to post on billboards and things like that. But I think for the amateur photographer, that's not really the priority. So whatever camera you have, is good enough, right? Create photographs using a, a large format, let's say, and then a normal camera, you will need to zoom in in order to see a difference, right? Yeah, Just well, there's the, two things. I think one is the the resolution and the sharpness. And yeah, I guess technically larger lenses, larger sensors, 100 megapixels that you can have now, you'll have more detail. But the question is, when are you ever going to see that detail? I think the only real place where you'll actually see it if it's an like a, a high quality art print on a gallery wall and somebody will you know take in the whole picture from a like two or three meters distance but then they might step a few steps closer and and have a closer look at some of the detail and then they will notice that extreme sharp detail that you can get with a medium format camera but for commercial work 90% of it is these days is goes to the internet so you're never ever ever going to see that extra detail, unless you do a lot of cropping, I guess. 
another percentage of it goes into magazines, which, you know, like how much, how big is a magazine print? Is that like, you know, would that be six megapixels? Something like that. You're definitely not going to need a hundred or, or notice that difference. Billboards. I remember I've shot billboards with 20 megapixel cameras, like 12 even at some point. 36 would be plenty. Like I had the D800, that was a 36 megapixel body. For a billboard, it's fine because, and even like the side of a building when they do the whole building in like this big banner, 36 megapixels is fine because nobody's going to see it from that close. And if they do see it that close, it doesn't matter if the pixels are one inch each. You know, that's, that's just what that looks like. And if you step back far enough to see the whole thing, you won't be able to see like the difference in one inch pixels or half inch pixels. So the only place in commercial work where you really get close to a large print is like, you know, the bus stops that they do and point of sale material, like uh, the stuff that they have print in stores. You might get a little bit closer to those prints and see the detail. But even there, if you have a 36 megapixel or let's say a 24 megapixel camera, uh, with a decent lens and your images and focus and sharp and all of that, that's plenty sharp enough. You know, I had that 60 megapixel phase one and I did shoot it at 60 megapixel a lot, but sometimes I, was, I would shoot it in pixel binning mode, which takes four pixels and turns them into one. So you end up with a 15 megapixel image, which for 90% of what everybody does, or maybe more, 95, 98%, is more than enough. The magazine pages, 15 megapixel is more than you need. So that's the resolution aspect of it. Uh, I think with the medium format cameras, there's a little bit where the depth of field, the bokeh, the the, the out of focus area, that stuff looks slightly different because you're using a longer lens to fill the same sort of um, angle of view. I couldn't explain exactly how or what, but I felt like if I shot on the on the medium format cameras, everything in the background that was out of focus was smoother. So not more out of focus, but less um, sort of busy. When you shoot, for instance, if you have a tree with leaves and sky in the background, that tends to get really busy on a smaller sensor, like really all these little circles. And... Maybe this is just subjective, but I felt like on the big medium format sensor, that was smoothed out a little bit more, which was a really nice look. And that is something that would come across even if you're looking at it on a screen as a small JPEG. You would still see how the the out-of-focus areas are rendered. Could be a subtle difference. You would only see it if you're shooting at, you know, F4 and below, like wider. That was something that I... I missed that look a little bit. I was like, okay, I think that looked a little bit better on medium format, but the the benefits of 35 millimeter were just so great, especially with the reliability. And then for a long time, I had my portfolio book, like back when we had, you know, beautiful leather bound printed books to take to ad agencies and stuff. And half of the book would be material from the phase one camera. And the other half would be from my D800, Nikon D800 and then D810. And I couldn't really tell which was which. Like I knew what I had shot it on, like I could usually remember, but you couldn't really tell the difference. So like, if, I think if you can't tell the difference in my portfolio, if you see the images side by side, this is, you know, after post-production and printing and all of that. Yeah, after all of that, you can't really see the difference. So why bother with the, um, with the medium format system? 
Well, that's an eye-opener for me yet again. And it's very uplifting, I'm sure, for the listeners as well. Anyone who wants to pursue fashion photography, maybe wants to get featured in magazines and shoot for billboards. You don't need to have a medium format. You don't need to have a large format. As David said, even a 15 megapixel camera is enough for a magazine. It's amazing. Yeah, I guess, I mean, there are people, will be people who disagree and say it's really worth it. But for me personally, I looked at the difference. I shot for, with medium format for years exclusively. Like I said, there's something, there's, in, in some images I can say, okay, here I can see that sort of like that depth of field that sort of feels different. The CCD sensor that they used to have in those old medium format cameras, I don't know, I could get the colors I wanted more easily in Capture One, sort of like I wouldn't have to do much and it would look the way I wanted to look. Whereas with 35mm Nikon, I felt like I had to sort of like find the right color, like really like look at the right profile and fine tune it a little bit to get started. So there were some differences, but like I said, the, the benefits of having a faster, more reliable, lighter system were just bigger than the small benefits of having maybe a difference in image quality that may be subjective. So um, yeah, I never look back. Our online photography community is a place where you can grow your skills and learn something new every single day. If you want to join conversations like this one and connect with like-minded photographers from across the world, you're in the perfect place. We have a special discount code for our podcast listeners. We're offering 50% off your first year as an extraordinary or limitless member. Go to photographycourse.net slash join to claim your discount with the code greatbigphotographyworld. Once you shot a few times in Europe, you said that you started working with an agency. What is it like working with an agent? Because before we started recording, you told me that you worked with an agent for 10 years and then you recently quit that. So what was that experience like? Yeah, so this is when I I first started in, um, this is, I guess, 2012 when I signed with that agency. And back then it was it was really good for me because I was a new photographer. I I had gotten some traction with the, you know being featured in that book and people seemed to like what I was doing, but nobody really knew who I, who I was yet. And back then you didn't have like Instagram didn't exist yet, or at least not as a serious platform for photographers. So a lot of the ad agencies and fashion clients, they were all really used to going through agencies. They would look at the agency's websites. The agencies would go visit the ad agency with a stack of portfolio books, or they would send a photographer with their book. That was the way uh, a lot of clients found their photographers back then. So I really needed that. And back then also, and maybe still now, that having an agent is sort of like a, a stamp of approval that you're serious and you're not one of those fly-by-night photographers or you're not a, an amateur it's like, um, you know, if you've been approved by sort of the gatekeepers of photography, if you're with a good agent. So all of those things made it really beneficial for me to join an agency. Contrary to what a lot of photographers think, they don't magically suddenly start bringing you tons and tons of jobs. What they want is they want to find somebody who has the potential to work a lot, but preferably who's, who's going to get jobs anyway. And then they get their cut out of that. But, you know, they brought me some jobs. They definitely brought me into contact with the, those first magazines that I worked for, which was really valuable to me. So at the time, it was a really good decision to start uh, to join an agent. Uh, the first agent that I was with, 
uh, after I think maybe two years, I was approached by a different agent. And I said, well, I already have an agent, so I, I don't think I need to switch. But about six months later, they tried again. And I was like, well, they, they that other agent was um, it's just bigger, more respected, older agency. I just had a better feeling about them. The head of that agency is one of the most respected figures in the Dutch uh, photography world, who also runs a gallery uh, with her wife. I just felt that, you know, it's a step up from the agent that I was with. So I switched agents then. And then a few years later, I moved to Sydney for a few years with my wife who's from there. So I found an agent there as well. So in total, I've been with three agents, the longest being that second Dutch agent that I was with until October of this year. Because I felt like a lot of things had changed in the photography world, especially through um, Instagram. I held off on Instagram for a long time when it first started because in the beginning, it was just really a space for sort of amateur photographers to share their snapshots or, or maybe people who aren't even photographers to just share stuff that they put a really heavy Polaroid filter on a, an image and share like an image of your lunch. So I held off on Instagram, but really over the, the few years that followed, I started realizing that it had taken over um, a lot of the photography space, especially the way that clients find photographers now, clients find photographers. The role of agents there, I think, has declined. I think every art director, every brand owner, every fashion editor, they all have Instagram accounts. They all follow lots of photographers. They all use Instagram, I think, to find new photographers, to stay connected to photographers and all of that. So the, uh, the role of agencies there, I think, has declined a little. Over the past couple of years, I had been keeping a list of where my new clients came from. Like I would get a new client that came in and wanted to work with me and I would just simply ask them, hey, where did you guys find my work? And they would always tell me something about, you know, they had seen, they were, they followed this other brand or this other photographer and they had seen the work I shot for them. And then they started following me on Instagram and they always kept me in the back of their minds that way. And then when it came time to like find a new photographer for the next campaign, they came back to me or some story like that, you know, or they would have somebody who used to work with a brand that I worked with before, or it was always an organic connection like that. And it was never the thing that it used to be before where a brand would literally just like go to an agency website or even call the agent and say, Hey, we have this job coming up. Who do you think will be a good fit? Or they would look at the website and try to find somebody there. So I'd been keeping this list of where my clients came from. And I think for almost three years, none of my new clients had come through my agent. You know, they didn't find me through my agent. They hadn't been, they didn't come through my agent going to see them with my book or cold calling them or any of the work that the agent was doing. And they, they were doing, they, they, I'm sure they were doing lots of work to get me work. But none of it was really working because I think the landscape had changed so much with Instagram. And the way it works with an agent is you give them a percentage of your day rate. So, and that also goes for all the clients that you get through your own networking and through your own acquisition work and whatever you do. That's usually the agreement. So I was giving them 25% on a lot of these jobs, not really seeing any additional new clients in return. I think for photographers now, if you're just starting out, it could be really great to have an agent for a few years, but maybe also not. Maybe you can just as easily do it yourself. 
I'm seeing lots of other photographers and also stylists and makeup artists around me that used to be with an agent and then quit, or in some cases, the agent went out of business and they had to quit. And they're doing it all themselves now. And with Instagram and all the tools you have, that's really doable. It's not the way it was before where you really, it's a huge step up that you really need as a photographer to have an agent to be taken seriously by clients. I think that has faded. I've even heard from clients like younger brands that have only started in the past like five to 10 years. Some of them have said to me, like when I still was with the agent, they said, why, why, why do you have an agent? What, what, is, what is the purpose of that? Like, what does that help? Because they, they didn't grow up with that. And I would explain, but they, like several clients have said to me that they don't really see the use and they prefer it if somebody doesn't have an agent because you can communicate with your photographer directly. Like if you go through an agent, you'd have to email the agent and then they would email me with a question and I would e they will email the client back and it just uh, makes the communication a little bit more difficult. So yeah, I think a lot has changed in the past 10 years. And I think maybe for a lot of photographers, having an agent is still the best thing ever and they would never do without it. But for me, I think the the cost had started outweighing the benefits. So I had to, um, I had to say goodbye to them after 10 years. Wow. Well, once again, you've surprised me with information I didn't know. Oh, great. For me, in my head for many years, I thought being signed with an agency comes with its own prestige. And it means that you're the solid professional photographer. But mm -hmm. it turns out that that's not necessarily the case all the time. I'm sure it still has its own prestige, but you don't have to be signed with an agency to be considered seriously by these magazines and companies anymore. Yeah, I think, that, I mean, the prestige thing is still there. And that's why it's probably more valuable if you haven't, if you're not established yet as a photographer. But, you know, I've been working for professionally for 10, 12 years, something like that. So I think a lot of people already know who I am in the, especially the Dutch uh, photography industry. They know who I am. And if they don't know who I am and they go to my website and they see some, you know, well-known brand names and magazines and stuff like that, I don't have to prove to them that I'm a legitimate photographer. You know, it's, it's sort of a, a track record by now. But I think if you're starting out, that that prestige thing could be, uh, it could make a big difference. So. Uh, and that's what it was like for me 10 years ago. That made a difference. That got me at the table with, with magazines and things like that before I had any names in my portfolio. Yeah, it can be a very good approach for sure. Photographycourse.net is a place where you can find an abundance of photography inspiration in different forms like premium courses, articles, video tutorials, editing resources, and much more. We have a thriving community where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, and discover new ideas every single day. Here is a message from one of our top community members, Robert Morton. Hi, my name is Rob. I specialize in wildlife photography and landscape photography. I'm a member of photographycourse.net online community. I like the community because you get some fantastic ideas and some great feedback. So take your photography to the next level by clicking the link in the description. That's what I did, and I haven't looked back.
If you want to join our online community, go to photographycourse.net and enter the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member. So if somebody's starting out and they don't want to work with an agency or they can't work with an agency, you said that Instagram is a good place to connect with people. Are there any other platforms that you would recommend for networking? Yeah, I would say like, don't think of the agency as, as the be all and end all of you making it as a photographer, like as the only way to do it. I'm afraid that Instagram really is the, the platform, like no clients ever going to see you on Flickr or 500 pics. That's just not where they look. That's uh, that those platforms are uh, made for other photographers to share, you know, work with other photographers. It's, and they're great for that, I think, but that's not where you find clients. Instagram is where everybody is. They're not on Facebook really. People are saying that Twitter is uh, good and I guess TikTok now too, but 90% of, or whatever percentage, a lot of all the art directors and brand owners and fashion editors, they're all on Instagram. Everybody's on Instagram. The thing with Instagram though, is that people forget that there's a difference between like the quality and quantity of your contacts and likes and followers. If you want to be a social media influencer, then you have to have hundreds of thousands or millions of followers and that will be your business. If you're a photographer, you don't need that. You don't need a million people to follow you. You just need like few hundred important people in your industry to follow you. So if you're chasing more and more followers and more and more likes, it's probably not going to be great for your work because you're going to start posting the kind of work that people are liking and you might not, they might find it hard to stay true to the stuff you actually need to make. You just need, you know, the local magazines and fashion editors and the the people who run small brands and the art buyers for larger brands and all of those people who will actually give you work, you need them to follow you. And that's, you know, that's pretty hard to do just from scratch. But if you just start working a little bit, every time you work on a shoot, you make a few more contacts, you make a few new contacts. And then the person who used to work for this brand moves to the different company and they still know who you are. And that's how you organically grow your Instagram following. And I have 4,000 followers on Instagram. And I think uh, at least three quarter of that are just other photographers and people from Reddit and people who will never give me a job, Uh, which is fine. You know, that's great that they want to see my work and, you know, can leave a comment or whatever and sometimes have an interesting chat. But among those 4,000 followers, there's a few, maybe hundred that are people in the industry that are fashion editors and uh, art directors and people like that. And if, as long as I stay visible to those people, that's going to lead to jobs. Uh, and that's why I have to post regularly, which I don't, uh, which is really a struggle for me, but that's what I'm trying to say. So you don't need to, you, you don't need, ha- need to have a million followers. You just need to have a, a couple of like important, interesting f- people follow you. Because um, those millions of followers are not going to get you jobs. That's very true. And that's fantastic advice. It's definitely a great alternative to constantly chasing likes and followers, which I'm sure is very tiring for most people, very exhausting. 
I've had experience with that, and yeah, it's not worth anyone's time. No, unless you want to be an and I think it's counterproductive. I think it uh, it takes energy away from other things. You know, that you start working for Instagram, and then basically you're just working to make Instagram's parent company richer, but you're not working for yourself. You're not. You're not. It's it's not doing anything great for your own work. It takes it takes resources, time, energy away from those other things, and it can you know, lead you down a path where you start making the kind of work that does well on Instagram, which usually is not the same as the kind of work that does well with clients. Mm-hmm. It's just a slightly different world, a different aesthetic, a different... So there's a threat there as well, where it just takes, not only takes energy away, but actually that sort of contaminates your world, your work with that sort of Instagram, that Instagram vibe. That's true. You said that one of the best ways to connect with people is to actually follow those that you actually that you work with during your shoots. What yeah. if you find someone on Instagram, let's say the editor of a magazine, for example, would you recommend personally reaching out to them if you haven't worked with them already? Or is that not a good idea? I guess you could always reach out. I have on very few occasions reached out to a brand where I thought, man, what they are trying to do is fits really well with my work, but what they're doing now, I, I just think I can legitimately do it better. Like I can offer them something that I think is what they're trying to do, but they're not quite managing it yet. That's super rare. And you don't, you shouldn't overestimate the quality of your own work. Shouldn't <laughs> underestimate it either. But I think for everybody to just start contacting brands and magazines, probably in most cases, it's not going to work. Yeah, you have to have a really have to be have a really clear idea of whether or not it's worth it for them. Otherwise, you're just bothering somebody, which probably doesn't really hurt that much. Like I get a lot of uh, DMs from models or aspiring models because you know, of course, they'd they'd like to work with me. And nine times out of ten, uh, it's not a great fit. I might put them on a little list somewhere, but. Uh, nine times out of 10, it's, it doesn't lead to anything. But then once out of 10 times, or maybe a little less, it might lead to something down the road. So for that model, it would, would have been worth it. I guess it's the same for photographers trying to contact uh, brands and magazines. There's not really any harm in it, but you should be really realistic in, do you actually have something to offer for them? Or, or are you just you know desperate for work and bothering anybody who might give you some? Because in, the, in that case, the answer is probably no. Mm-hmm. You really have to be really sure that they would be interested in what you do. And that is really rare. Like even for me, as somebody who's been working for a while, it's not often that I come across a brand where like, oh yeah, they need me. Yeah, no, it's very realistic. It's important to have that kind of mindset when you're working with people to avoid annoying them and to also avoid wasting your time sending yeah. hundreds of messages to people. Yeah. Yeah, and also, the, I mean, you'll get so much rejection. That's probably not going to be fun either. Yeah, exactly. It's never fun, right? Yeah. You mentioned that Instagram photos tend to have their own look, especially if you want them to go viral. And then commercial photos or fashion photos are very different. And I've noticed your portfolio specifically has a very elegant but professional feeling to it. What technical advice would you give to commercial photographers who want to take better photos? Yeah, I'm not sure I should say that like Instagram photography always looks different from commercial photography, but I have at times seen that there's sort of a difference in things that do really well on Instagram and things that 
are actually in magazines and uh, fashion campaigns. There seems to be some sort of disconnect there, maybe just because there's way more work on Instagram from just anybody. And with the commercial work, there has to be some sort of filter. Somebody has to book that campaign. So they've thought about it. But your question was, what advice would you have for somebody aesthetically? Technical advice for fashion photographers, basically. Like I've naturally started making the work that looks the way my work looks because of how I've developed and the things I like and and my personal tastes and sensibilities. So that doesn't really apply to anyone else. That's just how I work. What's worked well for me is to keep things quite simple. And I think this is also what I've learned from working as an assistant and a post-production artist for other photographers. In a lot of cases, what these people do is they don't overcomplicate things too much. A lot of it is about what's in front of your camera. Really, that's like that's the the, the most important thing. Like get something in front of your camera that actually looks good. If like if the model's not great or the styling doesn't work or your location's not great or whatever, then nothing you will do technically will make it into an interesting picture. That would be my first piece of advice. Like like care more about like what's in front of your camera than everything you can do technically or the camera itself or anything like that. I also, when I think about my own work and how I create it, I try to keep things simple. There's not that much, you know, I sh- a lot of the stuff you see on my website is shot with daylight, often without any reflectors or diffusion or anything like that, just the daylight the way it is. And the way I shoot that is just, I just look at the lights and see, okay, it looks like it looks nice from this angle. Of course, I know before I start which things are going to look nice and which aren't, but I just keep my eyes open and keep looking at what I'm doing. And if the light is not exactly how I want it to be, I move around a little bit because if I just change my angle slightly or change the model's angle or her position or where she's standing, then the light will look different. So technically, it's really simple, but also because of that quite, yeah, it might be something you'd have to spend some time learning, like just learning to really look at light. And then when I use artificial light, whether it's continuous or flash, I kind of go by the same idea that daylight, sunlight is usually either very soft when it's overcast or open shade, or it's very hard when it's direct sunlight. So with artificial light, I tend to gravitate to either of those extremes where it's you know, I'm going to create a really soft light that's like like open shade, or I'm going to create like hard direct sunlight with a with artificial light. So that kind of simplifies a lot of lighting choices. There's certain kinds of lighting that don't fit into that, so you don't have to. I don't have to make those or think about those. And then with post production, there's really not not that much I do. So I take the images into Capture One. I'll add a little bit of contrast. I'll maybe mess with my levels a little bit, the levels tool. What else? I set my white balance. That's about it, really. And then in Photoshop, I'll do some uh, clothing retouching if something needs to be changed and maybe, you know, some skin, really basic stuff. Mostly it's just dodging and burning, like just making this little bit darker and this little bit, a little bit lighter, and then it looks good. So in terms of advice... I would say keep it simple. Think more about what you have in front of your camera and what you like, what you want the image to convey and what you want it to look like. 
and think less about like which fancy techniques can I use. When you look at the amateur photography space, sometimes people get really excited about some fancy technique in post-production that make, makes all your images look like this or like that. And that goes really, does really well on Instagram. Like there's all these trends. Like I remember in the, in the Flickr days, you had the, uh, what was it called? The dragon, dragon effect, which makes every like black and white image really, um, poppy and shiny and with lots of local contrast and things like that. And then you had like the orange and teal look, and then you had like these exaggerated film looks. And there's always this next one, next amazing trick that will make all your images look like X. And people really like invest into that. And then they decide, okay, well, maybe this look that's on all my images now uh, is not the right look anymore. It's really easy to waste a lot of time that way. I think when I look at my images from five years ago and images from now, yeah, they can stand side by side because not that much was done to them in like in terms of extreme treatments or very complicated lighting. And so it's easy for my work to fit together a little bit better because a lot of it is quite simply done. It's just... Um, like a, really a, a large percentage of the stuff that's on my website is stuff that I just shot with uh, natural light, a uh, single prime lens, like a 50 or a 35 and nothing else and barely any post. So okay. keeping it simple would be my, my advice. Well, that works for me anyway. Like if you want a completely different look, then something completely different will work for you. Like, and some people need to be more experimental with their post-production or they need to be more extreme in their lighting choices or filters that they put on lenses. Like different things work for different people, but for me, it helps to um, to keep things really simple. Of course, yes, to each their own. But I like your advice because I think it applies perfectly to anybody who wants to pursue fashion or commercial photography. Just having mm-hmm. that clean, timeless look is perfect. And as you said no matter when you take these photographs, they will probably look good even in a few years because you didn't apply a specific trendy effect. And yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah I, I do think that, I mean, there are plenty of photographers working out there today who do amazing commercial work and use very outspoken treatments or colored lights, or there's definitely a market for that. And there's people who do that really, really well. But this is how I shoot. This is, I've always been a bit of a minimalist, especially in terms of gear and technique. And then this works for me. Mm-hmm. I have a question that might be similar to the one I just asked, but I think there might be a few differences. Um, I love the way that you work with colors because they, again, have that minimalistic look, but at the same time, they work well together. So what should photographers keep in mind when taking photographs uh, in terms of color? Everybody, of course, should do like whatever fits with their work because like some people should really go all out with as many colors as they can get into a, a shot. For me, it helps to just sort of decide on the color that I want to dominate the image and kind of go with that. There might be a contrasting color to make it stand out to have a little bit more of a sort of a black and white feel. But what works well for me is if I go with one sort of theme for like this is a more of a bluish image and that's not in post-production really it's more in composing the image 
like what's the model wearing? Where am I putting her? How am I using the lights? All of those decision uh, decisions to just make things fit together. I think that makes it less, what you were saying, a little bit more classic and clean if you don't like try to squeeze too many different colors into an image. Mm-hmm. I think that's how it works for me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to plan for these things beforehand because for me, I've never done a fashion shoot, but I imagine that you need to be very conscious of colors because if you have too many clashing ones, then everything's going to look like a mess, unless that's the look you're going for. But in most cases, I see very clean colors that complement one another in fashion portraits. Yeah, I guess so. I, I'm i not sure if I'm really that conscious of it in, in terms of planning. Because I might just, you know, I, I know like before we start the shoot, I know what the location is going to look like. I will have seen pictures of the locations. Maybe I've been there. And then if the location has all these sand colors, then I know that that's what I'll be working with. I'm looking at some of my own work right now thinking like, how do I do this? And I, I don't think there's that much like decision making involved. I go with what's already there. And that's the way I know how to work. I don't think I make a decision ahead of time, like, okay, today we're just going to do a completely blue shoot or whatever, or like a sand colored shoot. But I'll show, I'll show up to the location and think, okay, well, these are the colors we have. Let's stick with that. And then, of course, you make your, your smaller decisions in like which particular corner of the location are we going to be working or which way are we going to face. And, you know, if the light's coming from behind, then the colors are going to be more washed out. And if it's coming from the front, they might be more, more poppy colors. So you can make all of those decisions as you go. But I, I think I make those decisions sort of naturally without thinking. So I can't really explain how I'm doing it, but mm-hmm. I guess it's just going with what's there. Yeah, no, it's, I think that's the product of your experience and also your talent for photography. And that can only come with practice and continuous practice. And then with time, you develop your own intuition. I think every photographer has their own way of approaching these things and their own unique uh, vision. So practice eventually leads to that vision, I think, uh, coming to life and understanding what really works for you. Yeah, I think so. I think I, I get the question a lot. Like, how do I, how do I develop my style? Or like what people really want to sort of like dis- decide on a style when they start like an Instagram, like, oh, I need everything to look like it's part of the same thing. And they, they tend to think that that's like a trick you do in post-production or something like that. I don't think it works that way. I think for me, the longer you work, the more you see that you tend to like the same thing or you like to do things a certain way. I guess even when I started working, I had been thinking about work and looking at work for so long that I had a, a pretty clear idea of what it, I wanted it to look like. But if I look back at my, like, for instance, my, like my website, yeah, all the stuff sort of fits together. I can't really explain why or how, but these are just the things that I like looking at. This is what I like to see. And I think that's the best thing you can do. Like, don't think too much about how's it going to look on my Instagram or what, what do people want or like what's trendy right now or just start making stuff that you like the look of. And then... In the end, I think there will be a consistency in that because it's always you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think when you're working even commercially, you have to like what you do and that will reflect in your work. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I've always had a pretty clear idea of things that I like and things that I, 
like I see a lot of photography that I that I really like for somebody else. I'm like, oh, this is great, great, beautiful photography. It is so creative and so well done. Fashion photography or other kinds of photography. But then I draw a line where it's like, yeah, this is great for somebody else. That doesn't fit with the little thing that I want to do. Uh, so I shouldn't start imitating that work or uh, you might incorporate some like small element of it if it fits. It's good to separate the things that you just like to see from the things that you would like to make because otherwise you'll run the risk of you know, seeing something interesting and trying to incorporate that in your work and then the next thing and the next thing. And then, and then you start, I guess, chasing trends or things that catch your interest. So I, yeah, I try to be true to that. I have some sort of vision in my head. I've always had some sort of vision in my head of like what I want the world that I'm creating as a photographer, what I want that world to look like. And that develops and changes over time, but it's, Usually it's always in the same sort of space and it's really amorphous. I can't really describe what it looks like, but it's in my head. So whenever I'm shooting something or, you know, preparing to create something new, I always have to check with myself, does this fit with the stuff that I have in my head? Like this, this vision that I have of what I want my world to look like. And if it does, then I can go make it. And if it doesn't, then I'm not doing the right thing. Yeah, I think it's a good attitude to have to think that this works for somebody else. This is good for somebody yeah. else, not necessarily for me. And that's how you stay true to your own style. And of course, it's nice to experiment. As you said, sometimes you incorporate something that you saw into your own work. But if you continuously copy someone else's style, even if it's subconscious, I think it will lead to a lot of inner frustration. Yeah, exactly. And something because I, I could look at work and see, oh, this is an interesting technique and I can kind of figure out how they did it and then get all caught up in that challenge of like, could I do this too? That's tempting, but I have to, you know, let that go before I start making that because then I'll start making somebody else's work. I don't want to make somebody else's work. I want to make my work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's nice uh, to have that mindset. You mentioned that you are quite active on Reddit. Before we started recording, you said that you often spend time answering photographers' questions. So I'm sure that you have a lot of experience in that field, seeing what people struggle with the most and what they enjoy the most. So in your experience as somebody who helps a lot of photographers out online, what do photographers struggle with the most in general? Yeah, I see a few different things. I think one of the things is like people are really concerned with what should I be making? No, I think probably what I see a lot is people think they want to be fashion photographers, but they haven't really looked at that kind of world yet. And they've only experienced a little bit of it on Instagram. So they don't really know what the actual, what actual fashion photography looks like or what that professional world looks like. And they don't have any ideas about what they want to create. I think I have sort of like this large amorphous, but still distinct image in my head of what I want my uh, world to look like. I always say, call it sort of creating a world. Like if you look at my website, you should have an idea of where you are, uh, what kind of people inhabit that world, what kind of style fits with that in terms of like, you know, how the people dress and what places they go to and all of that creating that kind of world. If you don't have that idea in your head, then 
you're basically shooting without without any guide. I haven't thought about how to phrase this, but I always call it sort of creating a world that other people want to be a part of. Like that's I think what I'm doing in my photography. It's like, oh yeah, if you see my work, you're like, oh, maybe I I want to be that woman, or I, maybe you think I want to be with that woman, or. I want to have that cool experience that she's having, or I want to be as stylist as she is, or, you know, that's what makes the work commercially viable. And if you don't have a vision for what that is, like who that woman is that you want to create in all of your images or who that's, what that world looks like that she inhabits. If you don't have that vision, then it becomes really hard to, like, then you don't have any guidance of what, of, for all your creative choices. Right, because this that idea, that sort of idealized idea of what I uh, want my world to look like, that gives me guidance. That tells me I don't like the hair here because it doesn't fit with my picture, or that this styling, that outfit doesn't work with with what I want to do. So it gives me guidance. And I think if you don't have that guidance, then it becomes really hard to create a consistent body of work. Ultimately, if you don't know what you want, then you'll find it very difficult to find a good starting point. Yeah, exactly. Like I've said this a few times, like there's this quote, I think it's Eleanor Roosevelt who said, what did she say? Well, small minds discuss events, average minds discuss people and great minds discuss ideas. I think in photography, it's like small photographers discuss uh, equipment that's always where everybody ends up talking about on the what everybody ends up talking about on the internet like which camera which how many megapixels is this lens sharper than that uh, that's not where it's at and then average minds discuss techniques like how do i light this this is you know a little bit more interesting but still it's not what the the thing ultimately is about what it's about, like great minds or great photographers discuss ideas. Like, what are you bringing across? What's in your image? And that's like, you're communicating. You're, you're, you're basically photography is like saying, hey, look at this. So, okay, what's in your image? What, are, what, what do you want somebody to look at? Why are they looking at that? What's in it for them? What, like, what are they taking out of that image? And that's true, I think, for, for wedding photography or commercial photography or any kind of photography. You're communicating, you're saying something, you're, you're telling your audience something or you're asking a question or something like that. That's what it's all about. And everything else should follow from that. Like, okay, I want, to, I want my com- images to communicate this or I want to convey this sort of feeling. Okay, well, that will give you some guidance into what kind of techniques fit best with that. That will give you guidance in what kind of like styling decisions will work best with that. And ultimately, the techniques that are guided by that idea will also dictate what kind of equipment you need to use. Like, okay, you need flash for this, or you don't, or whatever. Or for this image, it's really important that it's really high quality, or it's really important for this image that it's actually low quality and blurry, because that gets the idea across better. What I'm trying to say is, like, if the idea leads, like, what are you trying to communicate? If that leads, then everything else can follow from that. And I think one of the things people struggle with, especially when I see photographers who are trying to learn on the internet, they start the other way around. They start with the techniques and the equipment and they forget to think about the idea. Like, why, are, why am I shooting this? Why am I asking somebody to look at this? What am I trying to express in here? So yeah, if there's anything, any big lesson that I would give to any photographer 
is, you know, think about what you're trying to, what you're trying to make your audience feel or experience or, or wonder about, or what are you trying to convey in the image? Yeah, it's a very profound thought because even for myself now, I'm thinking back about when I got into photography, I came across a bunch of images that I really liked. I loved the feeling in the images. I didn't Mm -hmm. understand anything about the technical side of things. Of course, I was curious at some point, but initially I just wanted to create a similar feeling in my work. So I started with that as my foundation. I think that helped me avoid the more technical side of things. So it took me a while to master the technical side of things because of that. But at the same time, I was able to stay true to my work for a long time and really enjoy the process of getting into the feeling side of things, if that makes sense. Like, of course, the technical stuff all still really matters, but it only matters if it's in service of the idea. Like, a certain type of light will get the idea across better than a different kind of light. And the same thing with like, you know, it's things like sharpness and image quality for some kind of some, for some ideas, it's really a lot better if the image quality is really top notch and sharp and contrasty and whatever. For other ideas that you want to bring across, you might want to have a complete lack of contrast or you don't want to have things super in focus or, you know, that's the appeal of a lot of film photography where people want to have more artifacts and people want to put blooming filters over their lenses just to take off some of that sharp digital image quality. All those ideas are valid. All those techniques are valid. It can be really important to use the right technique, but you have to use it for a reason. Like, why are you using this particular technique? Well, because a little bit of motion blur will put some more movement in the image and make it look more casual and snapshotty. And that fits with the, with the idea that I want to bring across in this particular image. Or on a different image, I need it to be tech sharp because that'll help bring the idea across better. It's always the idea that should lead the technical uh, decisions. Mm-hmm. And if those two things work in harmony, then you will be able to create images that you're really proud of, I think. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, th- that means that some of my images are out of focus or uh, have motion blur or are grainy or, you know, I don't do a lot of that. Most of my images are pretty clean, but, you know, it has all those decisions. Like sometimes I have something in front of my lens that makes things blurry or have a terrible reflection somewhere. Sometimes I let some shadows go completely black. You could pull the detail back out of it, but... If I don't think that helps the idea of the image, then I don't do it. Yeah, I think it keeps things really fun, right? Because you, of course, have your own style, but you can always try something new that serves the purpose of the vision that you are trying to share with other people. It's exciting, in my opinion. Yeah. I have one more question for you, David, and that Mm -hmm. is, what is the one thing you'd like to achieve in this great big photography world? Oh, yeah. I saw that. That's a question that you always ask at the end of the podcast. I thought about it and I don't really see like uh, an achievement milestone, like getting into this or that magazine or this or that client or working with this or that person. But as I was saying before, I have this, I've always had this idea of, you know, a particular uh, world that I like, that a lot of photography I like fits into. That's something that came from, you know, my entire uh, life history and 
you know, I used to be a skateboarder and a punk rock kid. So some of that aesthetic has sort of woven into it. And I also really like very classic photography and beautiful women, like uh, the way Peter Lindbergh photographed them. And like all these little things work into this great, big, amorphous idea of the stuff that I like. And if I have one big aspiration is to like for my work is to always move a little bit closer to that vague, big, massive mood board that I have in my head. So that's a goal I will never reach. You know, I'll never be done because that mood board in my head keeps changing with everything I see, every image I save as inspiration, every experience I have in life, that mood board keeps changing. But constantly moving closer towards that, I think is my uh, my aspiration for photography. That's that's what I want to keep doing. And it's I think it's nicer to have something that you can never really say that it's finished because otherwise, like what would happen if I finally finished my my goal for photography? I would have to quit. <laughs> so with this goal, I can just keep slowly moving with every picture I take, every shoot I do, getting a little bit closer to the vision I have in my head. That's very true. Yeah, it's nice to have a goal that you can never reach. Uh, kind of sounds negative at first, but if you think about it, you realize it's exciting. It keeps you on your toes all the time, I think. And you still reach your goals just little by little. And Yeah, I think, I mean, I've been reading a lot about like sort of research into happiness and stuff. And what they always say is um, if you chase these kinds of uh, achievements, like I want to get that promotion or I want to make this much money or have a house like this or even just finish this project or whatever, it never really satisfied. If it satisfies because you, um, you know, once it's finished, there's, there'll be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Uh, and it could actually be disappointing once you get there. It's like, oh, I finally got that house. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, what now? They call it the hedonic treadmill where you just keep getting another step and you'd never move up, really. So I think that's true for creative work as well. Like if there was a single goal that you could reach, then it would be terrible because then you'd reach the goal and you'd have nothing less else to do or you'd have to come up with a new one. Um, so I like this kind of goal where you um, keep moving closer but never reaching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically don't be too greedy. Yeah, or don't define your goals too, um, too definitively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found that for myself in my personal life, outside of photography even, what works really well for me and gives me joy is to not chase anything, as you just said, and to just go with the flow, obviously, to have goals and to try and work hard, but to not try to chase anything specific because it helps to see where life leads you and to take those opportunities instead. I know this might not work for everybody, but for me, it's worked really well in the last few years, so... Really, that's what they say. It's a really dangerous thing about setting goals is that, you know, you might reach them and then what? The thing, what the things that do make people happy is uh, are more like the intrinsic motivation of, of something. Like if you enjoy doing the thing rather than achieving the thing, that brings a lot more happiness. Like if you enjoy the everyday process of photography and just focus your energy on getting that enjoyment, then that is a uh, gets you a lot more happiness than focusing on reaching a certain milestone or achieving a certain uh, certain thing. 
Yeah, that's a very healthy mindset to have. And I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me. We've been speaking for almost two hours. I really oh. appreciate your time. And yeah, your editor is going to have some work to cut this down. <laughs> no, you showed so much great stuff. A lot of things that I've never even heard of. So I really appreciate your input. And I'm sure that the listeners really appreciate it as well. And I truly wish you the best with your photography journey. I hope that you continue to pursue your abstract goals, let's say, and mm -hmm. enjoy every single photo shoot and remain present and happy in the moment. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank This is a pleasure talking to you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode with David. I really enjoyed speaking with him. As somebody who doesn't have any experience in the fashion photography industry, I was very amazed by everything he had to share. And I hope that even if you do have some experience, that you learn something new from this episode. If you want to join the conversation, maybe ask David some questions, make sure to join our online photography community. There's a link to it in the description. See you next week. Our photography community wouldn't be what it is without its amazing members. We're working on many exciting projects and have lots of great perks waiting to be discovered by you. For a small monthly fee, you'll receive all kinds of perks. If you join as an extraordinary member, you'll get an ad-free experience, access to every subforum, access to our 52-week project, the ability to connect with all of our members, and more. As a Limitless member, you'll get all of the perks that I just mentioned and access to all of our premium courses and Lightroom presets. This is the perfect opportunity for anybody who wants to elevate their skills without paying thousands of dollars for courses. We're sure that you'll love being a part of our community if you're a fan of this podcast. In addition to meeting new people, you'll learn something new about photography every day, which will help you improve quickly. It's also much more fun to take photographs when you have a group of amazing photographers supporting you. Go to photographycourse.net to find out more and to get 50% off your first year as a member. We can't wait to see you in our community. And again, just as a reminder, go to photographycourse.net slash join to claim your discount with the code GREATBIGPHOTOGRAPHYWORLD. We can't wait to see you there. There's a simple reason why photographycourse.net is the highest rated photography community in the world. It's because the people who use it made it that way. Why not join us right now? Improve your skills, get exposure, and discover an exciting new world of photography. While you're at it, claim your special discount code by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member.